Hey guys, welcome to podcast 118. This is the first of three podcasts on the topic of addiction. Um, let's just jump right into this podcast and say it is not PG-13 or below. Uh, Casey, I think we're going to hear some things that might be rated above that. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so bear with us as we share our stories with you. And um, I'm going to give Casey a grace card as we tell the story because um, a natural component of telling a story of trauma is the act of reliving the trauma. And um, I certainly don't want you to relive the trauma, but you have a passion to tell this story. Um, It has made a difference in the lives of others. And um, I think you're more than willing to light us up like Christmas trees and tell us what really happened. Yeah, totally. You know, I, I think that over the years, you know, God has given me a certain amount of healing. Mm-hmm. And it's like that onion, mm-hmm. you know, like peeling away that onion. Right. As I get some healing, God says, okay, now let's go a little deeper. So today is layer 37 or something <laughs> yeah. like that. All right, so let's just jump into this. Um, tell me a little bit about your family of origin. And I said a little bit on on purpose. Okay. Um, well, I was born in Tillamook, Oregon, and uh, which is a farming community. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, I never knew my my real father. Uh, never met him. So it was like my mom got pregnant when she was fourteen, and had me at fifteen, and uh, it was like a one night stand with that guy. Sure. So one of the things I learned in school was that oftentimes you can hear the first paragraph of a person's life story and kind of predict the outcome. So as we keep going through this, do you feel that you're like a statistic there? Definitely do. Yeah. yeah. So. So let's fast forward a little bit because what you shared right there was a lot. And we could, as I shared with you before we started the show, we could probably go on and on. Um, But let's fast forward a moment or two. Your mother obviously had issues, but um, you told me a story before we did this, um, albeit in writing, but we had this, we we started the conversation about um, your first um, memories or your first credible memories of time you spent with your second father and drug stuff. So tell, tell us that story about what you remember about your second father, your second, your second stepfather and drugs. Well, I think it was probably as early as even first grade. Mm-hmm. I remember, um, um, going into, um, a school in mm-hmm. first grade and then, um, a year goes by and I'll have to, and I have to redo school again because during that one year sure we had to move to five different places because we couldn't make ends meet because they were spending all their money my my parents were spending all their money on drugs so back then did you call that drugs where the money was going did you just what a name for did you have for it yeah i didn't i didn't know it was it was for i didn't really have a name for it mm. what um, drug was it it was heroin yeah yeah and um i did see them shoot up and I saw the bent spoon and the needles. Sure. You know, and, um, so where were you when you saw it? Uh, in the living room. So they did that. So they're doing it right in front of you guys. They're at the kitchen table. And how many of you were in the room? How many kids were in the room? My sister and I, So there was two of you. Yeah. Okay. And so you see them shoot up heroin and, and, and it, and it creates something in your mind. What did what, what, what got created? Um, I think that probably the best thing 
or the, the sorry, the, uh, the thing that really got created in my mind when I first saw that was, well, this must be acceptable. Sure. That it's okay to do this mm-hmm. in your home. You know, so I thought it was okay. I thought it was something mm-hmm. that was um, normal. Sure. For our family, it was normal to see that and do that. So since you've obviously told components of this story before, and granted, this is going to be a longer storytelling, what else do you remember going on in the home at that time that you thought was normal, but in retrospect, it wasn't anything but? Well, my mom, um, you know, even though I had a stepdad, he wasn't always around. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, when he wasn't around, other guys would be in the house. Yeah. And what do you mean there were other guys in the house? Like um, friends, um, like even a second cousin mm-hmm. that would come over just to, um, well, I could hear the noise in the bedroom at night. So you, the noise meaning they're having sex? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I could hear that at night. And so that's probably my first exposure really to hearing and not really knowing what they're doing, but I could hear what's sure. going on. And it was a rotation of guys, you're saying? Yes, it was. Uh, my mom was... Did your stepfather know? Or don't you even think he cared? Or I don't think he cared. No. Um, and, and, I mean, he was my stepfather, but they, they weren't married. Ah, uh, You know, so... Okay. So, just kind of a perspective, say, because when you paint a picture, you know, it's tempting to look at certain parts of the picture, but let's go back to the frame of the picture for a second here. So walk me through your siblings and your and your and your best memories of you know before you became adopted later, which is how you got your last name. Um, go through that that am- amalgam of accumulation of brothers and sisters and stuff. Well, um, my sister was born in Puerto Rico. Is your oldest sister? My younger sister. Uh, the one that's closest to you in age, though. Yes. Okay. She's uh, two years younger, mm-hmm. and she grew up. In, we. She was born in Puerto Rico and grew up in Puerto Rico um, for the first couple of years of her life. Okay. And then we moved back to Oregon. Okay. In the States. And um, I remember one time uh, when my stepdad, my third stepdad was involved, uh, we lived in Utah. And I remember this traumatic time in my life um, when we were living in an apartment. Mm-hmm. It was probably the third story apartment. And my sister somehow got outside the rail. And there was a point where I had to grab her or she would have fell down a story and, and landed on stairs. And that was, when I think about that time, mm-hmm. that was a unique uh, situation where I was able to save her. <laughs> that, that was just a strange happening um you know i was screaming and yelling and holding her with one hand and finally somebody came out and grabbed her <clears throat> and yanked her up but that was a uh, pretty traumatic actually. is that your part of your personality today the rescuer type yes totally and you think it started right then yeah i, def- I definitely did mm-hmm. and how old was she when that happened um four or five okay so very young does she remember it no, I don't think she does. Probably a good thing, huh? Yeah. All right, so we got your we got the next younger sister. Go through the next amalgam. Well, I don't have any other sisters except for adopted sister. Gotcha. Okay. And then my and then an adopted brother. 
Uh, but that was later on when I was 13. I see. I see. So you had a couple of events of significance, and I'm staring at my notes here as best as I can since there are so many of my notes here. So um, the whole point of this is to get to a, a place where we're talking about either or or potentially both drug addiction and sexual addiction. So let's um, let's jump forward to um, um, your, the sexual addiction side of you. So you're, you're telling me, you, li- you told me earlier that there was a time when you lived in a um, uh, single-wide mobile home and you shared a room with your sisters. So talk about um, early onset exposure to sex, uh, exposure to sexual addiction that relates to that story. Well, in that scenario, um, we had just moved from Portland, Oregon mm-hmm. to Gillette, Wyoming. <clears throat> and um, it was mainly to escape the law. <laughs> my, my mom and dad had... Mm-hmm. done an armed robbery in Oregon and then um, proceeded to go to Gillette, Wyoming to stay with um, friends and family. And um, But in this home, um, the law caught up with my stepdad and put him in jail for drug charges and mm-hmm. for, for the armed robbery as well. And um, uh, But my mom, she um, was absent that day uh-huh. they came and got my dad. So, um, but she came back and then left us with my, my sister's real dad, um, mm-hmm. who had left when I was four <laughs> and he already had an, another wife and his girls, but we were staying with them, um, just as a place to stay. Sure. And so uh, not a family, not a family just lodging. Yeah, just lodging basically, and but my mom, she, um, uh, well, let me just back up a minute. Um, in staying, yeah, this in is that, a convoluted story, so it's okay if you back up some. Okay, in staying there, um, there was four other four girls that they had, plus my sister, so five, and then I was the sixth person living in one bedroom, and. You know, we are, I can't imagine. Their, their ages ranged. And you're nine at the time, right? I was eight. eight so time. elementary school. Yeah. Okay. I was in elementary school, and the ages ranged from three to 12. I was eight. The oldest girl was 12. Another girl was 10. Um, Any sister, of, anybody in puberty in this group? No. Everyone okay. was 12 or under. Okay. And um, But I do remember with all my... Um, all the girls playing spin the bottle and and truth or dare I remember doing that and so somebody in that group learned that game from yeah. somebody older than them and they decided yeah. it was okay if the 12 year old a bunch of elementary middle school kids played that yeah the 12 year old girl actually initiated the game with mm-hmm. all of us younger kids doing the spin the bottle right so did you ever have any intimate any things with her um, the truth or dare was like touch me here, you know, and mm-hmm. so, um, yes, yes, we, we did. We did play around and curiosity, you know, is that amazing how that still affects us? Yeah. Cause I'm watching your body language as you tell the story and we're like, what a third of a century removed plus or minus. Right. Yeah. And you're still having a reaction to it. That's the, that's the thing about sexual addiction. It's just so just dendrites are so thick. It's like the ultimate Oak tree. Mm-hmm. You know how deep it can go. So, um, it's almost like I feel like the next best thing to do is to let you just kind of go with this component of the conversation. So 
you're you leave this environment and there's magic that occurs throughout the course of the foster system, right? And eventually you end up getting adopted. Yes. So go through that build up to getting adopted. Well, we were staying in that single wide trailer in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And um, one day my wa- my mother decided that she was going to go look for work. Well, she looked for work and a day went by, two days went by, a week went by, a month went by, and she never came back. So, you know, rejection, abandonment, that's what I was feeling at the time. And um, can't imagine. Somehow my grandparents found out about us, um, that we were in this home, um, no mom, no dad, um, really, just people watching us, um, which was my sister's real dad and his wife. And there was some situations in that house that made it really bad for me. Um, like I remember, uh, just just to go on the story a little bit, I remember saying uh, at the bus stop, we were mm-hmm. waiting at the bus stop, and I remember saying the word, the F word, mm-hmm. one time. And one of the sisters um, told on me. and um, this Told who, your sister's father? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, when he got home from work, he proceeded to discipline me with a, a leather strap sure. and 30 lashings. 30 for the use of the F word one time. Yes. Uh, on my on my butt and my legs bare. And I couldn't walk the next day. I was really, I was really distraught from that. I mean, yeah. I didn't know what I was feeling. And how time. old are you at this time still? I'm still eight. Okay. Um, but somehow my, my grandparents found out about it and sent for us. So mm-hmm. my sister and I alone flew from Gillette, Wyoming to Cheyenne, Wyoming, then flew from Cheyenne to Portland, Oregon. Okay. And okay. we stayed with our grandparents for around six months. Okay. And what was it, that like? Six months of the a household where you actually knew the people. Uh, that was actually pretty nice. It was actually, um, I love my grandma and grandpa, and they just really uh, nurtured us and taught us about uh, just being thankful for what mm-hmm. we have. And um, but still, I'm eight, nine years old, you know, so I don't, I don't know all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And God is just. But really, you had a stable school. You knew you were getting where your food was coming from. You had laundry being done. Yeah, you had a bed that was yours. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's a massive upgrade. We take all that for granted, but for yeah. you, that was an upgrade. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so you had six months there. Six months there, yeah. <clears throat> and then we moved to um, my sister and I got separated, mm-hmm. and she went to my aunt in Tillamook, and I went to my uncle in Tillamook. Two different families, mm-hmm. and um, I stayed with them. Um, till I was nine and a half or so. And that's when actually my aunt Lucy, um, uh, led me to Jesus for the first time. So this was your first time of any kind of spiritual anything. Yeah. I mean, my, they went to church every Sunday, you uh-huh. know, and, um, it was this old Baptist church, but still, uh, <clears throat> they sang songs and worshiped Jesus and, mm-hmm. and she's the one that introduced me to Jesus. At nine and a half, and you got it. You at, understood that at nine, yeah. I mean, I understood most of it, but I didn't really live it, you know, uh, at the time. But because uh, I moved out of there and went to foster care, 
So the woman introduces you, and then all of a sudden you're in foster care. That's that sounds um disconnected. Disconnected. Yeah, you would think, right? Because Christianity yeah. gets this label as all conditioning, love, all knowing, all things that these labels get bolted upon Christians. Oh, by the way, they're human. Yeah. Well, life they, goes on, and they just they already you know my uncle had. Um, Four kids of his own. Mm-hmm. Were they all in the house with you? Yeah, they were all in the house. And I lived with, I was in the room with my two cousins, my brother, uh, my male cousins. And, um, you know, it was a good, it was a good time, good learning season. But I'll tell you that my cousins were rascals. <laughs> they, that uh, is such a polite word. <laughs> it, it had a, it has historically means bad. <laughs> yes. But today we consider it to just be fun yeah, that, carefree. It was one of those times, and they're older cousins than me, you know. And um, <clears throat> I remember one time just being out by the barn. I had to go to the bathroom, mm-hmm. and they just told me, "Oh, just go over there by the corner of the barn, go bathroom by the fence." <laughs> and it's, they didn't tell me it's electric fence. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, so they were rascals, but I, uh, they were farmers. You know, and had, core. had cattle and had chickens and had pigs. And so every morning we we're up early. Sure. You know, uh, doing chores and stuff like that. So I learned a lot um, being with them. Cool. And, but they just, they couldn't. Um, the other place that my sister was staying at with my aunt, um, something happened there and she was, she had to come and live with my aunt and that was just too many. So sure. at the time, uh, they had too so much. So they had to they had to sort of clean up shop to a certain extent. Yeah, so, so it was they, like a business decision in a sense too. So in actuality, we actually went back to my grandparents for uh, a few months, and then that's when we got put in the foster care system. But during that time that we were at my grandparents, um, my grandma and grandpa said, "Your mom might be able to get you back." But she would have to come back here to Oregon to serve a year in jail. So they told you this like they needed your input, or is this just more of a notification? This is, was a notification that, yeah. you know what, your mom um, can come and get you back. Mm. Um, but she has to serve some time in prison for an armed robbery. Mm. And um, there's a little bit of Christian theme there. Yeah. And some penance and what goes with it. So let's um let's jump into the foster care conversation. There are multiple podcasts that talk about failed government ideas that start with truly honorable intention, right? Yeah. I mean, we're commanded thousands of years ago to, you know, take care of the the sheep, you know, equip the saints. You know, we have lots of biblical references that we're supposed to do things like the foster care system does. Foster care system is a different animal than what's described in the Bible though. So cover your time in foster care. I think that's a significant story that um, there's no way people can understand enough what that means. Yeah. um, It's like trying to summarize marriage in two sentences or less. The first foster care that we went into was this uh, older couple. And they used to be on in Hollywood. I mean, they were dancers. Okay, all right. Like they danced so with... So they're entertainers. Okay. Yeah, they danced with Fred Astaire and some of those other people, and they were mm-hmm. they were old, they were stars, you know. <laughs> that okay. was their, actually, their stage name, their last name was Star. Okay. Um, so um, they took us in, and they were in their 50s. 
mm-hmm. and um, they were okay. But the the lady um, was just very controlling, mm-hmm. uh, and I found that out because of what she would make me eat, <laughs> which was uh, rutabaga soup. Have you ever had rutabaga soup? <laughs> I don't know if I could spell rutabaga, let alone have the soup from the animal, the critter. And it's not a critter; it's a vegetable. And salads and stuff like that, you know. And I just, I wasn't, I never got a taste for salad, sure. And so I would find my, find myself taking a bite of salad and then, you know, taking it out. There of my you mouth, go. Putting it in my pocket, mm-hmm. you know, and then going to the bathroom and uh, letting it out there. So sure. And. um but they just, um, we were just not having, we were going to this elementary school, my sister and I, um, William Clark Elementary. And I was in fifth grade, and my sister was in third grade. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, that fo- that time during that foster care was, it was just okay. It wasn't, I didn't really care for the people that much. They just met our basic needs. You know, they didn't go above and beyond. So they didn't attempt to love you, per se. I didn't feel that. No. Sure. No. And, um, but we knew a couple people. I was in a fourth and fifth grade split class with, uh, um, with a guy named Joey. Mm-hmm. And my sister was in the same class as Amy in third grade. And, they were both keepers. And so my sister had written a letter mm-hmm. about her situation in foster care and that she was not feeling loved and all this stuff. And it was something that Amy found out about somehow. Um, and it was actually sent to the principal. Because sure. there was a concern there in this foster home. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Part of that is legal. You have to report instances where you feel a child's uh, welfare is in jeopardy. A teacher might have saw that, and he might have been legally, or she might have been legally compelled to turn that into the principal. Yeah. So, and I'm not positive that anything was going on there. Um, have you ever seen the letter? Home. I haven't seen the letter, but I'm, my sister told me about it after, you know, years later. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how the Kievers found out about us. And therefore your last from, name. From their kids. And so, so they adopted you. Well, we went into foster care with the Kievers. We moved to the uh, Kievers. Okay. In fourth and fifth grade. I was in fifth grade. My sister was in third. And um, we were in foster care with them. But man, I'll tell you, my sister Vicky and my adopted brother, or my foster brother Joey, did not get along at all. <laughs> they were just at each other all the time. Still true? Uh, no, no, not good. anymore. It's, no, it's 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 a fairly good relationship now. Um, but fast forward probably two years, mm-hmm. uh, it just wasn't working. Um, my brother and my sister, my foster brother and my sister, mm-hmm. were just at each other so much that they decided it'd be better for us to move to another foster home. So, um, but this time. It didn't work for us to be at the same home. Mm. All up to this point, except for a brief moment at our cousin's house and our aunts and uncles, we were together, my sister and I. And um, so that was your real—that was kind of your stabilizing force for that first 
window of life. Yeah, I mean, that was my... It certainly wasn't your parents. That was my, my life, was to watch over my sister. Sure, understood. And um, to help her. And so that, that was pretty much uh, what was going on in my life. But at that time, I, I went um, to another foster home, and my sister went to a foster home that was uh, quite a ways away. Mm-hmm. And so, like, we could never visit because uh, she was just, you know, hours away from me in the same state, but, you know, way away. Understood. <clears throat> but in this foster home, um, I got in some, some trouble. What does um, that mean? Well, um, you know, I had, while I was in foster care at my, at the Kiever's house, my mm-hmm. my sisters both read Seventeen magazine, mm-hmm. and that's where I picked up um, looking at girls in swimsuits and stuff like that. Sure, and actually, you know, that's when I I was probably eleven, twelve years so old. So soft core, yeah, pornography. Um, but I would make it. I'd fantasize about it, and that's when I started masturbating mm-hmm. at that time. Sure. How and old were you, for perspective's sake? Eleven. Okay. Um, so I'm going to hit you with that. How old were you all the time? Because the listeners have to put together this jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, right. So that's a good one to have. Name, location, age, names of people around you. Those always help. Yeah. So that's when I when I actually started my sexual sexual addiction. addiction yeah, sure. Was when I was 11. Mm-hmm. And um, so going back to this other foster home, um, the parents didn't really. They were just kind of similar to the stars they were just mm-hmm. kind of watching over me and not really you know loving me at all nurturing <laughs> wasn't happening no it wasn't it wasn't that so um more like bumpers in a pool hall yeah as opposed to teaching out a bowl yeah now this this next part is is um hard for me to say it's right. uh, but it's i think it's so nece- we'll go into a break after this it's necessary i think for people to hear um mm-hmm. that um that there is um, there is recovery after things happen that that you shouldn't uh, that you shouldn't be doing and uh, what happened was is they were babysitting these girls mm-hmm. and i during lunchtime one of the girls was upstairs um she was young and um Mm-hmm. I just my fantasy got a hold of me because mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't feeling accepted. I wasn't feeling loved. Wasn't feeling any of those things. So Maybe I, you're even bored. I wanted. I was bored, and I wanted, to, and I acted out. I, so what does that mean for people listening in? Acted out. I touched that girl inappropriately. I didn't have sex with her or anything, but I I played with her. And was she open to that? Yeah. Or was she resisting? I think she was open to the, that. You, you know, but, I mean. but she didn't. Um, I don't think she really knew what was happening either. All right, so she was more confused, perhaps. Yeah, and during a change of the girl, um, she revealed that to the babysitter, which mm-hmm. was my foster mom and dad. And so then, so she told the Keevers. No, well, then the new the the new foster mom and dad understood. Okay. The new foster family. She told the new foster family that um, I was touching her in her privates. Mm-hmm. And um, and you admitted it. 
Yeah, I admitted it. Okay. And, um, but I, so. Then, and then what happened? Then comes more rejection. I get sent to a psychiatric hospital for six months, a six-month evaluation. <laughs> you know, you laugh when you say that, but I'm looking at your body language as you go that. That doesn't seem, that seems like straight out of the dark ages. Yeah. That a single incident would justify a prepubescent boy getting six months in a psych ward. Yeah. I mean, if you had pulled a trigger and caused multiple people to die, you know, if this was Sandy Hook or something like that, that seems justified. Not downplaying the value of that one girl's life or the trauma or the damage that came from that, but it does seem like, um, you know, an overkill. Yeah, the consequence seemed to outweigh the the action. It seemed to me. So was this a seg? Was this distant? Meaning, were you? Could you no longer see your sister while you're in there? Correct. I couldn't see anybody. No one would be allowed in. Um, except um, after four months, they started allowing to ha- people to come, um, but no one, no one came until the fifth month. So, um, things like that generate, you know, resentments and things like that. To, to what kind of extent do you still have um, lingering effects from the resentments from that? Because we got the the girl herself, the reporters, the organization. The people who you thought loved you who dropped you and didn't come see you. Yeah. You got four different spots I just listed where you could be resentful if you wanted to be. Yeah, and it and it took a long time to overcome those uh, resentments and bitterness that I felt towards those people that rejected me. So, for perspective's sake, how old are you today? I'm 55 now. So you're 55, and how long since this happened? So it's been 44 years. Just give us... Again, I'm trying to give visualizations. Where in these last uh, 43 years and change did you finally get over that? Only about uh, 14 years ago. Yeah, so that's kind of the that's the deeper message here. Resentment isn't a yes or no. It's more like a gas gauge from empty to full. Yeah. All right, well, let's take a break. We've been at this half an hour. We'll be coming right back. All right, so Casey, you've been in the psychiatric facility for four months, and you have guests. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Pretty amazing is that the the Kievers came to visit me because they mm-hmm. had just found out that I was actually in the psych ward, <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, so they came and visited all the time. And um, one time during the psych ward, I remember this specifically because um, the hospital staff allowed us to make a dinner for um, for all the parents. Oh, and so I got to make spaghetti <laughs> uh, for the Kievers. It's amazing you still remember what you cooked. Yeah, yeah, and I remember precisely putting a bay leaf in there. Mm. <laughs> so I don't know why that just just clicks in my memory. It's a good memory, I guess, because I I I, re, I recall it so vividly. Um, it's just amazing that I can remember that detail um, through all the other stuff that I had been dealing with, you know, during my, my stay there. But so, um, after those last couple months in the psych ward, I was released and they, the Kievers took me back into their home as their foster son. And I felt accepted, felt loved. And, you know, Kievers were a devout Christian family. And, and so uh, you're 12 by now, right? Yeah. I just turned, just turned 12. Okay. And, um, so we were going to a, uh, a four-square church. Matter of fact, 
It was East Hill Foursquare Church. Um, Positive memories? Yeah. Uh, Pastor Ted Roberts from that, that started Pure Desire um, mm-hmm. wasn't the pastor there yet, but he, was, he became the pastor of that church later on. So. Okay. So we're going to start that transitioning to Pure Desire and things like that, but I feel like I want to tie up some loose ends here on this um, the traditional education model. So you're, you're 12 You've you've got permanent foster parents now. You've cursed your last name has been. You've adopted their last name. They've adopted you into their family. Take us through that remainder of the adolescence. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I didn't. I during where our going going to church at East Hill Church in Gresham, Oregon. Um, uh-huh. We had a youth group there called uh, the Carpenters Union, and I even remember the song the Carpenters Union song that we had, we had come up with as a group. Mm. And um, so, but that that church is the first church that, I, that really I felt accepted at. And I received the baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit and got baptized in water at East Hill Church. Uh, so that was a good transition for me. How old were you when that happened? Well, I was 13. Okay. Yes, I was in junior high group. And uh, it was really good for us. Um, but then we, who's met, us, you and your sister, my sister and I, well, no, not, my sister was not with us yet. Okay. Um, she didn't come until I was adopted at 13. When I was 13 years old, that was when she came to be with us again. And then she finally got adopted when she was 13, like a couple of years later when I was 15. So, um, so good memories at this church. Yeah. Good memories at that church. And we had, um, my parents decided to go uh, away from that church and be part of a church plant from that church into a different uh, location in the city. And so we moved as a family with them. So there was probably maybe 20 people that moved to start this new church in like Clackamas, Oregon, uh, which is a small suburb of Portland. And, um, so we started out in a motel, and then we moved to a school, and then we built the building, and um, so that progressed pretty pretty quickly. And uh, during that time, I was in attending the youth group and uh, just growing in the Lord. Um, but I still had all these things from my past that nobody knew about. You mm-hmm, know? Sure. But my mom, uh, my adopted mom. Uh, was required after taking me in as a foster kid again after the psychiatric ward to take me to counseling sessions for like a year. When you say take you, does that mean she sat in the lobby while you had counseling or was she sitting in the sessions? No, she had to sit in the lobby while I was having counseling. Okay. And I think one of the... Was that helpful in retrospect? It was, actually. Um, I got to talk about some of my uh, experiences growing up with that counselor and my foster mom at the time was in a few of those sessions, but not all of them. Um, but the one thing that I really took away from that, and this wasn't a Christian counseling at all, but um, the one thing I took away from it was a tape that she had given me for relaxation. And it was just, you know, tensing up certain parts of your body for 15 seconds and then slowly relaxing them. And then that would help me 
and in the evening times to just really wind down mm. myself and to really focus on my breathing and that kind of thing. It do you really, still do any of that today? I still do. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. That's what counseling's about. It's about lifetime preparation stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And every once in a while when I'm feeling tense and I can't sleep, that's what I do as I, I tense up the muscles one at a time and then I tense them all up at the same well, time. Well, I had a counselor that taught me some breathing lessons that I'll, that I can still use. He had, he recommends them at the start of the day for parallel reasons. It's, it's like a prophylactic more than it is first aid. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Think of it that way. So, um, you know how a, uh, a pearl, how an oyster works when it creates a pearl, right? The core of what a pearl is, is a piece of grit, dirt, something that really caused problems. And the only response the oyster has, since it can't just remove it without help, is to keep wrapping layer and layer of protective substance around it that prevents it from affecting the rest of the body. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, that's how sex works. <laughs> you know, we have these experiences and instead of doing, we are, we actually replicate oyster-like behavior <laughs> in that we keep insulating it from the rest of our lives. I know my wife has um, called me a sexual agnostic before, so I take sexuality and try to segregate it from the rest of who I am. So throughout high school, did you have some of that? Yes, I did. And, and um, you know, I was still uh, in masturbation quite a bit. And, and by then, looking at magazines, you know, whenever I could get them, yeah, at our age, that was the that we didn't have Wi Fi and things right. like that. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. We and we had the the magazines and and uh, you know I was trying to. That get was it. all secretive, right? No one knew about it. No, 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 no. <laughs> and that was when I was living in my uh, the basement. Mm-hmm. So how did you get the magazines kind of, into the basement? Kind of by myself. Yeah, I, I would just put put them in my book bag. You know, mm-hmm. and just stick them down. Well, how did you get them in your book bag? The reason I ask is people want to know these kinds of things. Yeah, well, actually, I'd go, I'd either find them at a friend's house. Whatever uh, that means, right? Yeah. And then you'd, or. <laughs> or I would go um, buy one. Sure. And the people at the stores generally don't enforce age no, rules. Yeah, they didn't. And um, so that became pretty, uh, a pretty long habit. But even so how though, much of your um, wealth, if you want to even call it wealth, were you pouring into that habit? It's hard to say. It's probably like. Did you have like a paper route, and you spent like fifty percent of your paper route on? <laughs> I did have a paper route, and just uh, for the record, I didn't know that. That was just came out. It was a guess. I did have a paper route for quite a while, but uh, normally we would not spend it on stuff like frivolous things like that. We would go to the fast food or um, to the convenience store and buy junk food. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right, then. Another indulgence, sure. you know, uh, that I would do. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the high school years, you know, I tried to make a name for myself in sports. And um, What was your go-to? What was your sport? Uh, well, I was a four-year letterman in three sports. And um, so football, track, and baseball, so- and golf and wrestling. So. <laughs> so because a lot of this podcast has to do with athletic stuff, what did you, um, what position football was yours? What did you play? I played fullback and middle linebacker or roving, okay. roving linebacker. So you were, you were, you were literally the decision maker. And the punter and the kicker. Okay. Well, those aren't decision makers as much, but that for sure is. And I know cause my kid was a punter and a kicker. Yeah. And, um, um, you said baseball, right? 
Yeah. What, what position did you play there? Catcher and second base. Okay. Well, second base is a very explosive position. You truly have to go from stop to full throttle yeah. as fast as possible, often. Yeah. And during summer league, I played outfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was during high school. High school, I played uh, infield. And uh, in the summer, I would play for the... So how in what ways did um did it, your uh, your because you obviously had an addiction to sport concurrent with all that how did that help or harm your addiction to sex? It actually helped because um, I would especially when I was doing wrestling mm-hmm. um, because that required a lot of conditioning because uh, for football season I would gain weight sure uh, I'd be up to one ninety almost two hundred pounds and then I'd I'd get down to one sixty eight pound class for wrestling so okay. Uh, so that kind of fits the addictive model because you were going to extremes. Yeah, definitely was. And, you know, all the while, I'm still in church. I'm still, uh, even when I was a junior and a senior in high school, I went to six proms, you know, with all these different girls. And I was considered a good date. Because? Because I was spending good money. I'd uh. rent a limo and spend money on these girls and... and uh, you know, none of them, actually, I, I could say that none of them ended up in sexual relationships. Um, they were, I was just, at that time in my life, when I was a junior and senior in high school, I was really involved in church and uh, involved in missions trips and on the drama team and part of the worship team. So that's fascinating you say that because a lot of people perceive that sexual addiction is very Linear in its progression. It starts with magazines. The next thing you know, it's kitty porn, right? That's kind of the perception or flashing people or something like that. But the idea in the middle that it's oscillatory, meaning it's like a sine wave going up and down. Most people don't understand that. So the idea that you had these crazinesses early on and then all of a sudden they just went away because you were a nice guy on a date. Yeah. That whole imagery is completely bogus and it makes everything ununderstandable to the outside world. It was, and I was dating a girl at the time, and, um, you know, I told her that I wasn't a virgin, you know, because mm-hmm. I had, you know, in my high school years, I had probably my first time I had sex was when I was 16. Mm-hmm. I was a sophomore, and the girl I was dating at the time was a senior, and that was my first experience in the back of my parents' car on a top of a mountain somewhere. And, and so for perspective, I mean, this is, it's, it, we need to say this because it's on the chopping block, our current culture, define what it meant for, for you to have sex at 16, because we have made this very blurred. So what was it? It was just, um, I mean, it traditional, a, a fantasy coming true. So you were um, visualizing somebody else, some other thing at the time. No. Um, uh, but she was, um, we were the same age. Sure. You know, I was, you know, because I was held back a year. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were the same age. I was 16. She was a senior and she was 16. And mm-hmm. um, and uh, I just. It's it, a tough story. It, it felt like it felt like nothing I'd ever felt before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't. Um, I didn't think it through all the way um, because there was consequences. Um, they talk about those. It, it was guilt. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of guilt for a long time. And you um, went back to church, not long thereafter. That relationship with that girl didn't last. You know, 
it was just a purely sexual thing, and there was no intimacy. Mm. You know, that's interesting. At a young age, you were already able to determine that sex and intimacy can, in fact, be separated. Oh, by the way, there's a cost. Yeah. yeah. So you'd already you'd already had the hardcore experience with that truth at a young age. Well, and going back to my girlfriend, um, she told me that I, you know, I told her about my indiscretions and mm-hmm. then, and then she said, well, cause I was, you know, I was thinking about getting married and, um, she just said, well, I, I don't think I could be with anyone that has, um, it's not a virgin. It's not a virgin. Yeah. And then two years later, after we had broke up two years later, um, she had sex with some guy and got pregnant before she got married. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, the games that we get stuck playing with ourselves and with others, right? Yeah, exactly right. So progress through these now. So your um, your your athletic, whatever have you, does it end in high school or do you keep going beyond? No, I, I got scholarships actually to go play football and wrestling. Where um, Stanford and um, a Stanford, little- like in. In Northern California, Stanford? Yeah, Northern California, okay, so Stanford. Pac-12, so Power 5 schools. Yeah, and um, and I also had a scholarship to Linfield College, mm-hmm. um, which was in Oregon. And um, But I didn't do that because, you know, I never really liked doing homework. So instead, I went in the Army. Okay. And, uh, and at right out of high school, I went right into the Army and served my country for... Um, so this Six would be years. like from 85 until 80, 91, is that right? 86 until 92. 92 yeah. Okay. And so, um, again, we could do an entire show just about sexual addiction and how it looks in the Army. Yeah. Right? Well, I was, I was National Guard, so I was a weekend warrior. Okay. And then two weeks in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it didn't stop. Even in the National Guard on the two-week. So that noise in the background is thunder... We have a thunder and lightning storm passing over the area right now, so sorry about that. Yeah, so um, I don't know. Just being uh, being in, I was working as a welder. You know, that was my occupation in the, in the Army National Guard. I was a welder, mm-hmm. and so I just came natural. And I actually learned welding from my uh, adopted dad, Jim Kiever, and uh, I learned a lot from him and. It's amazing how much influence he has on my life, even today. That's awesome. Yeah. That's the way the system's supposed to work, by the way. Yeah. That's the whole architecture of it all. So let's um let's take um um uh, the window of time when you were in the National Guard. So you had this microscopic, you know, basic training period and then you immediately went went to the one weekend a month and two weeks in the summer, right? Yeah. What else were you doing then? I was I like I said, I was working at this machine shop doing welding and learning mm-hmm. learning how to weld from a really excellent were you still uh, living with welder. the keevers yeah still living with the keevers and we were working i was working so many hours we were working double shifts because uh, uh, our machine shop supported the local num- lumber mill so and and lumber mills or, 24 by 7 oregon is a huge producer of lumber and um so we were working 16 hours a day, and so I'd go home and get a few hours of sleep and then come back 
And on one of those days, actually two of those days, I almost got an accident. Um, one of them. You were too I, fatigued or something? Yeah. I fell asleep at the wheel and I hit the guardrail on the right side and woke up and uh, shot back in, into the lane. Um, but if I would have fell asleep two seconds earlier, mm-hmm. I would have went into re- the ravine. I'm not sure. So God totally had his hand me on that one. And then another one, I fell asleep on this old back highway. This is like 4 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I'm driving to work. And I'm 19 years old. And um, in this Audi Fox. And I didn't have my seatbelt on. Fell asleep at the wheel on a left-hand curve. Mm-hmm. And um, I hit the gravel on the right side edge of the road. And I felt it and woke up. And I yanked the wheel and shot back across the other side i hit this huge fence post and endowed my car and rolled it three times and landed up sideways yep. against a tree um in somebody's front yard and the people came running out and, mm-hmm. and it's was, it was just one of those things that um i had this little scratch on my cheek um from my glasses and the angels were totally holding me in that car mm-hmm. because i gotta have been tossed out so easily. And you said you didn't have a seatbelt on, right? Is that right? Yeah, I didn't have a seatbelt on, and God protected me. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. That is a so throughout your storytelling, story. you're you're all, you're now mature enough to be able to look back in time and um, see the hand of God on your life, right? Yeah. When you were 19, when you got out of the car, did you think that already? Yeah, I actually. My dad came. Uh, my dad, Jim Kiever, he came to pick me up. This is like. Five o'clock in the morning, um, uh, the people called, you know, because I didn't have a cell phone back then. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and uh, um, my boss had a cell phone, but <laughs> it was one of those big ones, you know. The car phones, <laughs> the yeah. bag, yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, he came and picked me up, and I said, hey, just took me to work. And I got to work, and the boss said, no, Casey, go home. You're just in a wreck. You're, you know, you got Yeah, the- he doesn't want you running. <laughs> yeah. 200 amps were the current on a stick yeah <laughs> yeah right sure so he told me to go home and um that was a great experience working at that place and just being around those people eventually i moved the head welder at that shop moved and started his own business and i moved with him to start with the business as sure. a welder with him so so let's jump into some other addictions at the time because this is about addiction even though sexual addictions the you know the, the thing that you and i share together what other addictions started rearing their head in your life? Yeah. Um, probably by that, well, when I was 21, uh, a friend of mine uh, took me out, and it was the first time I really drank and got drunk. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I liked that feeling. You know, if it started this conversation after hearing about your initial experiences with heroin um, and sex, and they gave me a multiple choice test and said, what age did Casey first get drunk? And D was 21. I never would have picked D. <laughs> right. I would have picked something more like 11 or 13 as your first No, age. no, no. Uh, nine was when I started smoking pot. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, my, my parents, um, my second stepdad and my mom got me a lid of pot for my ninth birthday. And oh, So at that time, was it um, legal in Oregon at that time? No. No, it wasn't legal. And um, and what was your response when they gave it to you? Were you thankful, confused? Yeah. What did you say? I was thankful and confused, but they helped me smoke it. <laughs> so 
So nine year olds. <laughs> they got me a corn cob pipe, and I had smoked so much that I had dry heaves really bad, mm. and my my whole chest became black and blue from breaking all the blood vessels in my chest from just all the vomiting. Yeah, and they took me to the hospital, and I forgot about this, but they they had um, taken me away from my parents for a season for like four months because of that, because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that was like, yeah, that was when I was nine. So the inter this is the interesting part about addictions. Even with that experience with pot, did you ever smoke it again? Uh, once or twice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then there, Isn't never, that crazy? Even after that, it's like, even after you've burned your hand, almost charred it on, on a stove, you still end up yeah. putting your hand back on now. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I did. And now, I never did try heroin. Um, but there's there's a story behind that too. My my mom called me Hawkeye because I was always in the car to look out for cops while they were going to score uh, their next fix. And one time they just just going back real quick, um, mm -hmm. they left my sister and I at the corner store, gave the store owner uh, five bucks and said, "Hey, can you guys give these guys some ice cream?" And they went and did their their drug deal. That's why I, I, I learned that later, but uh, mm -hmm. they went and did. I can't imagine that today. Yeah. Today they'd charge at least 50 <laughs> <laughs> for that same kind of thing. Yeah. All right. So um, we're only basically, you know, through your youngest of years and we've got some, some gaps to fill in here and there's a lot of addiction monologue mm -hmm. in this, in the, um, in the, in the ongoing season. So let's go through, um, let's, let's, let's kind of fast forward a bit through, your relationships with women and all things associated with sex from that post um, joining the National Guard, you know, forward. Mm -hmm. Take us through that. Well, um, I think I, before I met my wife. And how old were you when that happened? 27. Okay, okay. Uh, you know, my, my brother and my sister and my other sister were already married, had kids and all that stuff, and I'm the oldest, and um, didn't have a girlfriend, really. Um, mm -hmm. I had girlfriends, but nothing really serious. And um, You had the hot Texas Pete hot sauce, but you didn't have the actual but taco. The, the girlfriend that I was talking about earlier that wouldn't accept that I wasn't a virgin, mm -hmm. she, she was one I wanted to get married to. And that was when I was like 22, you know. And um, so I had a few other girlfriends after that, but nothing really serious. And mostly one-night stands, a lot of one-night stands, probably. Uh, you know, God reminded me of all the ladies that I took advantage of. Mm -hmm. And uh, the list was, um, before I got married, was probably 10 women, mm -hmm. 10 girls. And, um, you know, I, since then, uh, I won't go into what, what I did to make amends with those girls. Absolutely but, not. You don't have to. But, um, but I did do that. And, um, I wrote them each a letter, um, just apologizing for taking advantage of them. And so for those who don't know, part of the act of, um, healing from, or we call it recovering, but it's this route we agree to get on. It's more like an escalator than. It is like an elevator. But part of what we have to do is take a stare at our past 
mm-hmm. take ownership of it, and then try to do something to make things right, unless the act of trying to make things right stirs up something that makes the other person injured all over again. Yeah. So sometimes we just write letters and we never deliver them. Correct. And that's what I did. I wrote letters and I read them to a friend that I was in accountability with. Mm-hmm. And I've done the same thing. Then, you know, uh, then I burned them. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that was, uh, that was a, a time in my life where I was exploring um, what the possibility would be to be with these different ladies. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, was, there was a class that my college age group was offering called Healing for Damaged Emotions. And I was like, hmm, that's probably something I could use. Because <laughs> uh, I had lots of heal- damaged emotions growing up. And um, so, but we had a we had a college age group of 300 people and um, they would only take 10 for this class. And so uh, my girlfriend at the time, you know, I was thinking about, she already had a kid and um, I was thinking about asking her to marry me. And so we decided that I would take this class and um, we tried to do it together, but they wouldn't let couples into the class. So I did it first and, um, that's where I met my current wife <laughs> in that group for healing for damaged emotions. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So it was just one night we were, there's, there are 10 of us and a side note, um, my, my wife, Dawn, she never, um, she didn't really go to our church full time. She was attending another church, but came to our college age group and they didn't really let people go to this class unless you were under the teaching of the church. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit directed them to have her in this class. So hmm. her being in that class was a miracle. And then um, halfway through the class, we had a night of worship, and I heard her voice, and she was a good singer. Hmm. I, I like singing. And, and I also found out that she played guitar, and, <laughs> and I hmm. play guitar. So we had some things in common, and so I... I cut it off with the other girl and I started seeing this girl, but they wouldn't let us date during the class. Sure. Because we're sharing our intimate, most intimate things and, and deepest sins that we've done, you know, for our, for our damaged emotions. And um, so that's where I met my wife was in a healing for damaged emotions class. Mm. And uh, we've, my wife and I have actually taught that class together um, to high school kids um, at our church. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been something that we've been able to bring from our past um, and uh, help other people. Wow. So um, let's switch away from sexual addiction, but stay on addiction. Let's talk about um, your alcohol addiction. Let's, um, so you're married, yeah. and um, for the most part, you felt good about the outcomes of your life, right? Yeah. And then talk us through what happened after, um, talk us through the alcohol addiction, where that came from and what happened. Well, we were living in Oregon at the time and um, we had this volatile situation. So we had to move in with our, um, my sister and her, her husband moved into their basement. So just you and your wife. Yeah. Okay. Just my wife and I. Back uh, in the basement again. (laughs) <laughs> what is up with you in the basement? <laughs> I don't know. And that's where I kind of got find out, found out with the porn magazines. Um, mm-hmm. 
So your wife didn't know at this time that you had no, points to ask her? No, she? no, she didn't know. And, and uh, how long had you been married at that point? And, you know, this is, the attic is stupid. Uh, one year. Okay. You know, I've been married a year. Mm. And, uh, and I'm hiding porn underneath the mattress of our bed in the basement of this house. That you're supposedly... Yeah. The wedding bed is not defiled kind yeah. of bed. Okay. Exactly right. So holy, holy guilt, Matt, Matt, man. <laughs> it's t- t- terrible. And uh, we, um, anyway, my wife was making the bed one day, and she's she tucking the sheets under, and she felt something. And she grabbed it, and she approached me with it. And, uh, you know, I was... I wasn't stupid enough to deny it because <laughs> she had it right there. In her well, head. I would be. I'm, I'm known to be stupid enough to try to get around that thing. And uh, not that oh, we ever had that experience. I didn't know how still. that got there. You know, <laughs> yeah, I've I've done that before too. Um, yeah, but uh, my brother-in-law uh, was a pastor, mm. and uh, so you know, my wife confronted me about it. And I said, "Yes, you're right. I I have a problem with uh, looking at porn, pornography." And, and masturbating mm-hmm. to it, and and uh, so my brother introduced me to um, a book called Every Man's Battle, and that was the first book that I read. And um, God really helped me through that time. I really let's go back. Stopped. The first book you ever read—that is a contextual statement. Was that first book you first, ever read on this topic? On this topic, okay. yes, yeah, first book, and I. Yeah, because some people would say, "Oh, well, that's why he joined the army instead of taking a Stanford scholarship <laughs> because he never read a book." Yeah, uh, no, I've read okay, lots. I'm of glad books, I asked, but I, I didn't like reading. Um, but in this book, I I did do the work, and my brother-in-law really walked me and talked me through mm-hmm. the healing process and, and getting over this issue of um, sexual addiction. Mm-hmm. And so I walked through that um, with who'd that, you walk through it with? With my my brother in law, okay, uh, who was a pastor, and um, uh, so probably six months after that, my wife and I felt both felt uh, called to help a church plant. Um, you know, I had been through it before as young as a youngster, um, but my wife and I decided to move with um, eighteen other people from our church in Clackamas, Oregon to Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm. So we took this big caravan across the United States, and um, we moved here in 1998. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was working in construction as a superintendent for the first year and then got a project manager job, mm. and then eventually... And those things played a role in the alcohol? Uh, not so much, but um, probably after the third job, Fourth, uh, sorry, after the fourth job of a project management position, mm-hmm. that company was a party company, and that's how they rewarded their guys. You know, was by taking them out on a binge drinking, um, you know, vacation kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did that my first time with that company. We went to uh, Canada to ride snowmobiles in Ontario, and uh, they got me drinking and and. Um, I never really looked back. I just kept drinking and drinking and drinking. And then after even... even after so when you say drinking three times in a row, that's a time frame statement. What are we talking about? How long? Like years, months, decades? How long did you drink? Um, probably, probably about 10 years mm. total. Uh, but at first it was just 
you know, every once in a while with dinner or something. But sure. uh, when I got to this company, mm-hmm. uh, I started drinking like crazy because that's that was their culture. You know, they that's sure. that's what they did, and that's how they rewarded their their guys uh, was um, uh, by taking them there. And uh, uh, I would be working out of town for months at a time, mm-hmm. and uh, found myself in Fayetteville working. Arkansas uh, or North Carolina? North Carolina. Okay. Fayetteville, North Carolina. And uh, it's pronounced Vietnam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Vietnam. Okay. Um, found myself uh, drinking like crazy at night, going to the strip clubs and all this stuff, and lying to my wife about our ATM card that I told her got, that got stolen. And I'm, I mean, lying straight to her face and just. Because uh, my alcohol. yeah, that's a, that's a hardcore component of uh, addiction. Yeah, and um, it wasn't till years later that I finally confessed that to her, and uh, it took um, it took a lot of healing. But let's back up and go into after that. I worked this so after what after working at that party company. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked for another company. Uh, managing millions of dollars of work and making great money and, uh, but working a lot of hours mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, like the Ritz Carlton was one of the jobs I was on the view, which is 54 stories of condos in uptown Charlotte and, um, Ashton South ends big, big apartment complex and our condo condominiums and all kinds of different jobs. And, that's when my drinking took a step up mm-hmm. and I would, I would be drunk on the job before nine o'clock in the morning. Um, Did other people know? I'm sure people could smell it on me, but they might've thought it's a hangover you know, okay. from the previous night. Mm-hmm. But, but my drinking started at six in the morning and until noon, you know, basically, and it would be uh, seven and seven, basically, you know, um, was my choice. And I'd fill up a 32 ounce cup halfway up with, with, uh, Crown Royal or something. And then the rest would be Coke in it. And that just became a habit. And <coughs> excuse me, I came home one night and kind of collapsed on the bed and uh, basically passed out. And um, my wife had just had enough. And so she, um, I got a wake-up call the next morning. And she said, you either get help or get out. And so and that... So how long ago was this? That was about about 14 years ago. Okay. And so 13 years ago. And that that kind of changed my perspective... <laughs> of that of what I could lose if I mm. continued down the same path. Did you ponder the how to put life together without your wife before you made the decision or did you just immediately make the decision I don't want to put life together without my wife? Yeah, I yeah, I made that decision right away. I just and I didn't um and uh you know a few weeks prior to that, I went to a church building meeting. I was on the church building committee. We were building the new building for Joy Church. And um, and I came into a meeting after 
drinking uh, 10, 24-ounce beers. <laughs> and I thought it was fine, you know. Uh, no I, one said anything? I, I smelled like a brewery. You of know? course. And uh, my, my, word, my words were a little slurry. And the pastor's like, something wrong with Casey? <laughs> and uh, Tom Beeman, uh, my, my partner, uh, he was there with me, and and uh, he knew exactly what it was. He's you know he's been there, done that kind of deal. And he approached me the next day, and uh, so I had to make amends to the pastor and all the staff there at the church, and that was a hard thing to do. And um, so, but two weeks later, like I said, my wife said, "You either get help or get out." So I decided to get help. And I went through this um, time of counseling uh, called RTF, which is Restoring the Foundations. And that really, within that one session, was probably, it was three days of four-hour sessions. And they really got to the root of 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 an issue. And they prayed over me. They broke the bond, the bond of alcoholism in my life, and uh, I just had no desire to drink after that. So it's interesting. You call, they broke the bond. So you know much of what the secular world teaches us, and they have you know ample literature to reference here, is that um, there's typically a multiphasic approach that has to be taken for somebody to break a, an addiction of a of a controlled substance. When alcohol is a controlled substance, right? Yeah. You didn't have that experience. Yours was ready, fire, aim. Yeah, mine was like, it got completely cut off, ran away. And I didn't Mm -hmm. have another drink for like 12 years after that. Mm -hmm. And that totally changed my whole life. And I got into recovery group with um, Tom, basically started a new new recovery group for me. And uh, it kind of took Let, off. Let's talk there. about that because you know um, that's that group that you just described. That's that's where I met you, yeah, right? and that's where I met your, your Tom, and then which led to you listening to a previous podcast, which led to you being here today to do all that. Yeah. So let's take some moments now and just and let's talk about what's a recovery group and how does it work. <laughs> and you can get real specific on yours, but for the high level people in the world, <laughs> kind of cover out the this is why they exist and this is how they work. Yeah, the recovery group for me started out as um, doing what I'm supposed to do so that other people will be okay with me, you know. So I didn't go for myself at first. At first, I went. There's a people-completing component. Yes, there was. And mm-hmm. so. I, is that okay? Is that in retrospect? Is that okay? It is okay. I think for. I think so too, but I wanted to hear you say that. For a season, I think it's okay, but. Um, after about four or five months of going to the group, I was like, you know what? I really need to take this seriously. If I want mm-hmm. to get some freedom in my life, um, that's where um, the Holy Spirit really has to kind of bring conviction to each person that's involved. And um, I really got some freedom. We started off with uh, living in freedom every day, uh, which is an excellent curriculum. So you went through some books or some curriculum from people who are considered experts in the field. Yeah, that's a workbook. And um, that actually really started me off on the right path. 
mm-hmm. uh, of getting healing. And at first, I thought recovery groups was just for, you know, like Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I thought that was just for guys that struggled with alcohol. And I didn't really have that struggle anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, or so I thought, you know. <laughs> um, I struggled with other things like lust. You know, I still struggled with lust, even though I had went through every man's battle. And, um, but stressful things come up. And my immediate reaction is to go back to what was familiar mm-hmm. for comfort. You know, so that's what I would do. I would go back to fantasizing about people and masturbating. And, and um, so, you know, it's interesting. Uh, this is on a, a spiritual all pause here for listeners. So at the core of addiction is actually a very natural, beautiful desire, right? The core of sex, I mean, the Song of Solomon, it's black and white that the, you know, fantasy about his wife was a key component of those those words that was written there. So to claim that fantasy, fantasizing about a woman is incorrect. And that, you know, that he fantasized about his wife. But, mm-hmm. of course, we take it too far, and, of course, that's what happens. You know, yeah. we have repeated instances of, you know, people consuming wine, but it's when you consume too much or too frequently or whatever. Like wine at a wedding was a very anticipatory event, and it's throughout human history. It has nothing to do with the Bible. People do that kind of thing. Every weekend, there's not a wedding, but a lot of people get drunk every weekend, right? Right. Um, and we can go on and on with these examples of places where we get extreme, and that's where all these addictions go from. There's a natural root. Like, we all have a natural desire to touch and be touched. Some of us go too far. Some of us have a natural desire to be angry, and we go too far. Mm-hmm. We go too far with the whole thing. So you were mentioning before um, we hit the record button that you had a uh, three components of your personality, three shortcomings, you wanted yeah. to call it that, yeah. that you kind of feel were the undercurrent of all this stuff. And re- let's, you ditched the where they came from, which was important, I feel like, because we have to separate, because we're bigger than our, our life experiences, right? Go through those with people. I think people want to hear that. Well, abandonment and rejection are two of the biggest ones in my life. And, and you see those today still? Yeah, yeah. I still struggle with with abandonment and rejection, uh, I'm always looking for acceptance, you know, sure. <laughs> um, because I didn't get it as a young boy, as a young child. I was just kind of the the kid in the room, you know. I didn't didn't wasn't really loved. I didn't I didn't feel loved, mm-hmm. and you know, my dad didn't care about my my biological father didn't care about me, um, and I actually had to write a letter to him. I have, um, uh. We did this class uh, during our group. Um, we did a father wounds workshop, and uh, it was excellent. We wrote a letter. You know, we took a week to write a letter to our fathers, our biological fathers. And um, I actually had to do three letters because <laughs> uh, I did one to my biological father. I did one to my stepdad that I didn't like and my other stepdad. And... Um, that uh, physically did things to me, um, uh, physical abuse and verbal abuse and emotional abuse, all that was in there. But in writing this letter to my biological father, you know, one of the things I, I'd expressed some of my feelings about him not knowing who I was, uh, about feeling abandonment, feeling rejection, rejected by him, 
And I don't even know if he knew I was alive. Uh, I don't know if my mom ever told him that she was pregnant. You know, uh, it might have been just a one-night stand with him. And, um, but I still had feelings. I still, I didn't know them at the time when I was born. But, uh, you know, later I realized that in the womb, I was abandoned by my father. And uh, so I wrote him a letter. I told him how I felt, that I felt abandoned. I felt rejected. I felt worthlessness. I felt like I was worthless. Um, but this, at the same token, um, I told him that I forgave him. I forgive you for not being there. I forgive you for not being part of my life. And I thanked him for my life. Sure. And that just brought some some freedom to myself. Um, freedom that I hadn't had in a long time. And that probably happened. Yeah, you're, you're underscoring one of the, the fundamental themes of the Christian experience, this concept that uh, we had a model of forgiveness. And there's magic that occurs when we choose to forgive and not be bitter. I mean, I have examples in my life, too. Yeah. Of places. I've always struggled the most with forgiving myself. I mean, I can forgive others, I think, much, much easier than I can forgive myself when I go sideways. But I, I, can, I can very much be as bitter as the rest of them if you give me a chance. I know how to do resentment. Yeah. So others on your list here. You talked about the abandonment and the rejection. You had another yeah. one. Yeah. The other one was worthlessness. I just mm-hmm. felt unworthy, um, you know, unworthy to be loved mm-hmm. um, because of the because of the rejection and abandonment. I just felt like I would have to do whatever I had to do to be worthy of somebody's love. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the first example that I had of somebody accepting me, um, no matter what my past was, was the Kievers. Uh, the Kievers took me in. <laughs> they might get a chance to listen to this. It's going to be on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they just loved me unconditionally. Are they still alive? Yeah. Yeah, they're still alive. And I just uh, was with them uh, just before Christmas. And uh, they just mean life to me. They mean mean the world to me because they took time when no one else would mm-hmm. to love me and accept me for who I was. And they weren't easy on me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were, um, my mom would be right, standing right over top of me, making sure I'd do my homework because I hated homework and stuff like that. That's why I went in the army. <laughs> uh, but l- years later, you know, when I was um, 25, you know, I went to college and I went to a Bible college and uh, uh, just a, did a one year one year term and I did well. Um, but but it's because of the keepers in my life that's the stability, having mm-hmm. somebody stable that would love me, no matter what. That's awesome. So I've you know a common theme throughout all addicts is that if somebody really knew who I was, mm. they wouldn't love me. Yeah. Sounds like you owned that. I totally owned that for most of my life. And um, and I've actually said that before in my life. If you really knew me, and I said this in my head all the time when I'm talking to people, mm-hmm. if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. Mm-hmm. You, know, uh, <laughs> you know, as a coach, um, as an employer, even though I sold my business years ago, I would sometimes get to see real people because there's a persona they all have when they're either allowing me to coach them or, 
doing their jobs with me and I get to see who they really are. Mm. And um, I'm so keen as to when that happens. You know, it's so important to me that when they confess or they expose something negative that I do whatever's necessary to table my opinion of them and just love them. Yeah. You know, because I still remember when my father rejected me when he found out who I really was in this one moment. You know, I'll carry that burden the rest of my days. And, um, you know, I've rejected my oldest son for some of the behaviors that he's demonstrated lately, you know, stuff that's just embarrassing. <laughs> if I call a spade a spade, yet the love has to still be there. It has to be there, even if you don't know how to express it anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, this, this was hopeful. Yeah. I feel like um, when we started this, you were like, oh, Lord, it's going to take a while to tell my story. Or you don't, I don't even know if it was um, you or somebody else that said, yeah, he's got a doozy of a story. Somebody made a reference like that, but you got it out. Now we were at it an hour and 21 minutes, 47 seconds. <laughs> yeah. And all that goes with it. There's one thing, a couple of, a couple of things that have really helped me get through and discover who I am in Christ. And it's, it, the key has to be for me is the scriptures. And, uh, do you have any that stick out with you? Cause people always want to know which scripture verses mean the most. Yeah. I mean, James five sixteen really sticks out to me. Um, we were just talking about that literally days ago, yeah. single digit days ago. Yeah. So what is it? So everybody can hear. Uh, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. So what does that mean to you? It means that, that we have um, not only an obligation to share our sin with other guys. Mm-hmm. In, in our case, you know, we share sins with our fellow men, people that we are in accountability with. Mm-hmm. But that the healing comes when you do that, when you can, when you can share your story. And I've, I've said this many times that every time I share my story, my shame is cut in half. It's <laughs> pretty cool. That just, that just makes, makes it so much better. Uh, knowing that, that the things that I have to say to somebody about my life, can affect me in such a way that the shame is cut down and then that makes it all the more powerful. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm sharing my story with guys in a group setting um, or I've shared, I shared my story in front of all the men of our church and I've shared my story in front of our whole church before. And every time I've done it, the shame has just been cut down and it makes me that much more bold to share it with other guys to get them help. And mm-hmm. in that verse, confessing our sins one to another, it really means to me deep down in my heart that as long as I am doing my part to expose the issues of my life to the light, and that God will bring the healing that I need. Mm-hmm. You've got some evidence for it. Like your outcome today, this wasn't on the script. No. When you were 20 totally thinking, not. where am I going to end up? This, this wasn't on your script. Totally not at all. And now got, now I've been leading a pure desire group uh, for men, doing all kinds of different curriculums from pure desire, uh, whether it's Conquer Series or Seven Pillars for Men or some of the Doug Weiss, Doug Weiss material. And... Uh, Doug, I'm sorry. I told him what your name was, and he still got it wrong. <laughs> yeah, Doug Weiss has been um, very influential in helping me be an overcomer. 
uh, in this area of porn addiction and any addiction really cool. uh, can help. Uh, and recovery groups, uh, there's not a bad group out there. There's just some better than others. Mm, good summary. And um, I think our group is one of those ones that are better than others because we we take time to be more personal and we're not so um, uh, we're not so structured that we can't allow a person to express themselves in the group, you know. So, so at the bottom of the screen here, you're going to see some contact information for the church and the group that um, that um, Casey leads with Tom. In case any of you are interested in your local to Charlotte area, there will be a couple of other resources on the screen for people who are looking for some more help and some guidance. And um, thanks for being on the show. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. You're welcome.